Welcome, everyone. My name is Devan Mangumurthy. I'm a student fellow at South Asian Studies Council at Yale Macmillan Center, and welcome back to South Asian Studies Council's occasional podcast with South Asia's most significant intellectual voices. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Manoj Mitta, author of Caste Pride, Battles for Equality in Hindu India, a former senior editor at Times of India and Indian Express, and the author of two other books about anti-Sikh violence in India in 1984 and about the Gojra riots in 2002. Later today, Manoj will be delivering a talk about his newest book, which is a really magnificent, exhaustively researched piece that manages to be several things at once. A legal history mapping out the past and present of the Indian judiciary's relationship with community and religion, a portrait of frequent moral ambiguity and occasional moral clarity on the part of the founding fathers of modern India, and a clear-eyed journalistic picture of the discrimination and violence that remains not far from the surface of independent India. I also have the pleasure of having Sushant Singh, Senior Fellow at Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, and a three-time visiting lecturer at Yale University, join us for this conversation. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. And I just want to start with asking you about this book. Why did you choose to write it? And why, after a series of books about religious violence, did you turn to this topic? I originally uh, intended to do yet another book on uh, mass violence, uh, because that was... uh, you know, wittingly or unwittingly uh, became a major part of uh, my work as a journalist. There's far too much of it and for various reasons. And uh, in fact, the very beginning of my career coincided with the immediate aftermath of uh, the 1984 uh, carnage against Sikhs in right in Delhi, the capital of the country. So I that was something I could never get over. I was right from a very early stage of my career as a journalist, was following it up. And then ultimately, you know, it uh, led to this book. It took a long time because uh, there's far too much of opacity, uh, there's too much of cover-up. And I was essentially looking at it from the point of view of legal processes to look at how there was so much of cover-up in all sorts of ways, uh, so much of a gap between the rhetoric and reality of uh, justice and rule of law in India. And this was something so egregious, you know. Uh, They went on to admit, uh, what, a few years after the carnage, that as many as 2,733 Sikhs were killed in Delhi alone, right? And then the next book I took up was uh, the 2002 Gujarat carnage, as you mentioned. And in a sense, it was uh, inspired by it because of the way the Congress government uh, of the time uh, could... uh, leverage that, you know, uh, reaped an electoral harvest out of that uh, majoritarian frenzy that they could whip up, you know. So something similar was attempted in nine, early 90s in Delhi, in Bombay, and then in, in Gujarat and so on. So I followed up on that. I did a book on that. Again, focused on this legal process. And the title of the book, therefore, is The Fiction of Fact-Finding, Modi and Godra. So I wanted to then look at uh, another uh, recurring uh, issue of violence, uh, that is mass violence targeting Dalits, uh, the lowest uh, castes. In fact, they are considered un- you know, outcasts, untouchables. So there were uh, several such instances that I came to deal with, cover in the course of my work. And that uh, need was there in me to put it all together to examine why there was so much of uh, impunity for uh, this form of violence too. What I mean by that is uh, for communal violence, there isn't any special law. But for caste violence, there is one, you know, enacted in 1989. And it is supposed to be a stringent law. Uh, Some would even say it's a draconian law. 
So the question I wanted to explore was, why is there so much impunity for it despite there being such a law, right? And uh, then um, when I was looking at this, I kept running into this pattern of uh, some arm or the other of the Indian state uh, betraying what was clearly structural bias. Why would I say so? Because uh, um, again and again, you know, they would um, let off uh, the culprits on uh, the flimsiest of grounds, despite all the evidence of uh, mass violence. So that uh, made me uh, go into older debates, you know, the debate concerning the very abolition of untouchability in the Constituent Assembly. So then one thing led to another. When I was looking at that, it led me to older debates that took place during the colonial period. And uh, I found myself unearthing a whole lot of uh, unexplored uh, wealth of um, uh, new material, uh, essentially legislative and judicial debates concerning different aspects of caste, going all the way back to the early 19th century. And that's how I felt the need to widen the ambit of the book uh, because I could clearly see that uh, today's uh, fault lines, fault lines in today's India relating to caste, have their uh, origins in uh, these unfinished uh, battles uh, you know, of the colonial vintage. So that's how this book has come about. Uh, Manoj, uh, because you did your first two books on uh, interreligious or uh, communal violence, as you as you call, and this one primarily started as a project of intercaste violence. What is the difference between the between these two aspects of violence or two kinds of violence? Are they what are the similarities and what are the differences between uh, interreligious violence and intercaste violence? And does it in some way mirror the the racial violence that we saw in the United States in the previous century or the century before that? Okay. Let me uh, clarify at the outset that I uh, did these books essentially as a reporter, uh, as a storyteller. But when it came to this book, I had to uh, enter a domain that was essentially of academics. I recognized that uh, what I came up with is a result of uh, uh, neglect on the part of uh, academics because I was going into archives and, uh, you know, uh, old uh, uh, documents. Um, and uh, I came up with uh, material that uh, yielded a lot of untold stories. So I was looking at it essentially as a storyteller. But yes, coming to uh, Sushant's question, what is the difference between these two forms of violence I've dealt with? So uh, I might not have any theory to offer, but on the face of it, you know what is what is common is the that the victims are the vulnerable marginalized lot you know in in one case it would be uh, you know religious minorities in the other case they are uh, traditionally victims of one um, uh, hierarchy uh, social hierarchy that has a religious sanction among hindus dating back centuries or even millennia and uh, there were all sorts of uh, scriptural uh, sources that are often cited. So they have been on the margins of society. And uh, that is something that has led to this kind of uh, violence. Uh, it's been going on despite uh, uh, the constitutional provisions and all that rhetoric about liberty, equality and fraternity and all those stringent laws. Uh, the reality on the ground uh, didn't change much. And what is worse, the institutions, uh, both in the uh, case of uh, communal violence and uh, 
this caste violence have um, betrayed uh, the biases of the dominant sections as a result you have so little by way of uh, justice to show but another uh, i mean this is as far as the similarities is concerned the difference that uh, occurs to me is uh, that uh, uh, you know there is clearly a pattern of uh, communal violence uh, being exploited for electoral gains uh, it has happened over and over again in the case of uh, caste violence it has to do with their customs their way of life so it's not necessarily uh, there are no clear instances okay because of this uh, so and so political party or so and so leader one i i mean there are not very many instances of my making such that kind of correlation or did i come across others uh, making such a, it's it has it's more a reflection of uh, hindu society a problem that is very peculiar to them there are it's not very easy to draw such parallels with other societies and other religions because there's perhaps no other form of uh, oppression and uh, the inherent violence in it which uh, can be so directly traced to a religious sanction you know you do have uh, race in a big way playing out in uh, the very founding of this country and despite all the battles that were fought uh, us is still living with that problem coping with that problem right but uh, in the case of india when it comes to caste violence there's always this you know that's something that struck me in these debates that i recorded you know over those two centuries and uh, there is that bit coming out even in post colonial debates that there's a suggestion look you are interfering with our old ways of life um, you know there are all sorts of very odd uh, uh, counter intuitive justifications being offered by leaders who are otherwise valorized for uh they are taking on uh, the colonial rule but when it comes to this uh, they are all very confused mixed up compromised too much of uh, creatures of uh, traditional conditioning so that's what led to this uh, very rich uh, accounts of uh, the battles that we are fighting um in the case of us i would on the other hand think that um, uh, the the religious aspect doesn't figure that much but where there is again a commonality is that um, in the case of uh, uh, india you know the, what we call abolition of untouchability that took place uh, at the time our constitution came into force in 1950 is roughly uh, comparable to the abolition of slavery in 1860s right it took place in two or three phases uh, that emancipation proclamation then 13th amendment and what have you and then it, that was followed by this period of reconstruction when uh, un- when uh, federal forces were sta- stationed in southern states and then it was after they pulled out when southern states came into their own they began uh, uh, asserting i mean the white supremacists began asserting their old prejudice they couldn't uh, adjust to this reality of uh, you know uh, slavery not being available anymore nor could they adjust to these assertions of equality they couldn't countenance the thought of uh, uh black sitting at the same table going to the same restaurants uh, buses parks hospitals what have you so they came up with these segregation laws which are called jim crow laws right and then that is the context in which you saw violence unfolding you know that uh, riots or lynchings and so on and so forth so it took a while for that push back to come similarly in india it didn't happen for a while i mean through i mean this came about in 50 the abolition 
50s, you know, in the lifetime of uh, Gandhi or Ambedkar or even Nehru, who passed away in uh, 1964, our first prime minister, there was nothing like this they saw. It was only in 1968 that the first instance of uh, caste violence erupted in a place called Kilvenmani in uh, southern India. And that set the template for both uh, the scale of violence that took place. You know, there were some 42 Dalits, women and children who were killed, burnt alive in one small uh, enclosure, you know, in a hut. There was never any uh, clarity about how they came to be all herded into that, uh, you know, that very restricted space. Their bodies were found one on top of the other. Who was stopping them from escaping? All those questions remained unresolved. Yet, the Madras High Court, a few years later, went on to acquit every one of the convicted persons. So Kilwen Mani set a template for the sheer scale of violence and the scale of impunity. And there were many such instances after that. So the, that's another similarity, that uh, it's this caste supremacist uh, that they couldn't take uh, these assertions of equality on the part of those who were previously traditionally for many decades or centuries oppressed. So there was this kind of a backlash from them and it and it uh, showed that the system, uh, whatever the rhetoric, uh, was uh, unable to deal with that, uh, you know, stringently enough. So therefore there was so much of impunity and all that. And both of you are practice journalists. And as we've learned in the US and as we know from India, there is an importance that journalism has in providing coverage of instances of violence and oppression in India, you highlight in the book that outside of a few isolated instances, like Belchi in Bihar, there have been very few times when caste violence in independent India has, retrie- has received its due attention and due coverage until maybe months or even years after the events take place. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the relationship that journalism has with violence and the coverage of violence, and two, about how the composition of the journalistic core in India plays a role in affecting how caste violence is covered? I would like uh, Sushant to answer first. So, uh, Devin, I think uh, the fundamentally the uh, the bulk of Indian press or Indian media, as is the Indian intellectual elite, comes from upper caste Hindu, Hindu community. Uh, there is a distinct bias uh, based on caste, on gender, on religion, particularly in leadership roles or the gatekeepers of Indian journalism. You would hardly find a woman. You will hardly find a, a non-upper caste Hindu uh, who is there. And that is eventually reflected in the kind of coverage that you that you see uh, that happens in Indian Indian journalism. Uh, voices which are uh, not from uh, Hindu, upper, up, uh, Hindu upper caste men voices uh, are usually in some very small independent media platforms since independent media platforms have emerged because of the rise of the internet. But otherwise, this structural factor uh, where the uh, dominance of the Hindu upper caste men in the leadership roles and the gatekeeping roles of Indian journalism. And secondly, you know, as we have discussed earlier, Devan once the ownership of Indian media, which is predominantly with the mercantile community, uh, which is again a Hindu upper caste community, these two structural factors directly play into the kind of coverage or the kind of bias uh, that you see uh, reflected in the coverage. Uh, just to put it stunningly, as my very dear friend Hartosh Singh Bal says, the Hindu upper caste in India is less than at the worst period of apartheid what the Hindu, what the white community in South Africa was. 
it's at 15%. It is lesser than what the white community in the uh, in, in South Africa at, at the most horrible period of apartheid was. And the kind of control that they exercise over the intellectual climate, over capital, over things like which are directly re reflected in the media coverage. I think that structural factor definitely plays a part in what we see, uh, what we see today. So many sections, so many people have been brainwashed by this uh, view that, okay, we are now entered a phase where someone, a leader has come who has liberated India from thousand year slavery. So these old safeguards are all ir irrelevant. Why do we need a right to information? Why do we need uh, independent judiciary? Why do we need an independent uh, election commission? You seriously come across people arguing so uh, tacitly or in some instances quite directly because of the way they say, you missed the significance of this movement. That this is a time when India is on the verge of uh, reclaiming its status as Vishwaguru, world teacher, you know, rising power. So this in that environment, media seems to have completely got swept away by it. The way they speak, not truth to power, but the way they, you know, uh, behave as uh, lapdogs rather than watchdogs, and the way they go after any voices of dissent, um, civil society, opposition parties. And they show absolutely no um, consciousness of uh, the travesty that they are part of. You know, that this is not what, uh, you know, they're supposed to be fourth estate and all that. I mean, there's no such. I mean, everybody is, is engaged in this mission of uh, helping India become the next big power. And, you know, this media, media has been a very sorry example of that whole uh, uh, compromise of institutions. That makes me curious too, when we talk about the dominance of upper caste in Indian media, this book is framed as battles for equality in Hindu India. And I think that's an explicit choice. It's focused on this very peculiarly Hindu problem. But as you highlight in the book, it's not questions of untouchability, of caste, of discrimination are not restricted to just Hindus or practicing Hindus. Muslims from a very early period are brought into this, and questions of where Muslims fit in a caste hierarchy, hierarchy are brought into this. Questions of and where so Christians, Christians yeah. are brought into this. Yeah. Much of modern India now revolves or is within the ambit of questions of Hinduness and of how Hindu India is. How does that process and that internal conflict over the Hinduness of India connect with what you're talking about? And, and also Buddhists. The and Buddhists, yes. The, the, the new division. Ambedkar. Yeah. Yes. Sure. 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 Um, you know, I, uh, if I highlighted this expression Hindu India right in the subtitle, it was a, a very conscious choice. It came out of the fact that uh, this is what uh, the evidence uh, that has emerged. You know, uh, I didn't uh, go into it with any preconception. I was merely trying to understand where this uh, structural bias was coming from, why we haven't still got over it. And I discovered, to my surprise, that there were all these very illuminating debates, uh, very uh, relevant to my understanding of uh, today's India. And those debates turned out to be essentially between uh, two sections of Hindus, and not necessarily between upper caste and lower caste. In the earlier phase, in the 19th century, yeah, it was predominantly uh, between upper caste and, um, you know, uh, or let's say the ones who were conservative were essentially upper caste. But uh, in the subsequent decades, as from the turn of uh, the 20th century onwards, 
as uh, lower castes uh, began to gain greater access. And that is to do with uh, some of these constitutional reforms that uh, the colonial rule brought about, uh, giving more uh, access to Indians. And then on their own, you know, that's uh, one of the episodes that I highlight. In the year 1919, it's a, it was a bit of a watershed moment because there was this uh, uh, British uh, governor of uh, Madras presidency who on his own uh, made this amazing uh, gesture of nominating a member of what was then called depressed classes, meaning an untouchable uh, MC Raja, to the Madras Legislative Council. He did this at a time when there was no such demand made by any political party, any uh, dominant section of uh, Indian society, right? Uh, least of all Congress. I mean, they had just a year or two earlier, for the first time in its existence, um, passed a resolution, a very mild resolution relating to untouchability. Even that came about because some other uh, in legislator uh, who was not a Hindu, a Parsi gentleman from uh, central provinces, uh, which is now uh, Western Maharashtra, um, uh, Manikji Dadaboy, who breaks in uh, the silence of India's parliament or whatever its precursor was, you know, Imperial Legislative Council in the year 1916. And again, there was a pushback. Pushback from who? The Hindu right at the time was not uh, the Hindu right uh, that uh, we associate that term with today. I mean, because uh, RSS or the mothership of uh, the ruling BJP was yet to come into existence. That came about only in 1925. So I'm talking about 1916. So Hindu right existed in very much in Congress party, which was considered a big tent. And uh, there were people like Madan Mohan Malviya and Surindranath Banerjee, who were different times of presidents of Congress party and then president of Hindu Mahasabha. And Malviya was somebody who was, soon after Modi came to power in 2014, he was conferred the highest civilian title, Bharat Ratna. So he's a man of continuing relevance. He's a great hero to them. So it's very revealing to see what he said when somebody raised an issue like untouchability, which is a very egregious form of oppression, marginalization, denial of basic rights, dignity. And he had the gumption. I mean, that was the understanding of the people those days. He said, how could somebody raise such an issue in a forum like this? This is completely irrelevant. you know. But then that proved to be... Uh, bit of a, uh, a turning point in uh, these battles for equality because uh, although the resolution was not uh, put to vote or, uh, or uh, passed, uh, the government was uh, true to its word in uh, saying, okay, we will begin collecting data on this uh, marginalized section who suffer from disabilities that are entirely peculiar to them and therefore uh, need uh, special measures to ameliorate their lot. I mean, ameliorate is an expression that uh, Dadaba used. And out of that came about this uh, this reform that I was talking about, this initiative of nominating them. So they began to, by and by, uh, get greater space. So they were uh, fighting these uh, battles. So you had more and more of the people from marginalized sections, including untouchables, uh, you know, making, I mean, arguing their case, their own case, bringing about uh, an empathy which wasn't there earlier in those debates. So that is what uh, continued uh, post-colonial too. You know, to uh, as far as the social battles are concerned, to use the political uh, cutoff uh, to understand that would be very misleading because those battles were carrying on 
regardless of the political emancipation project because they didn't necessarily freedom fighters didn't necessarily overlap with uh, these equality champions and uh, the social struggle that i i try to um, you know narrate i try to map out in this book relating to caste predated um, uh, colonial period you know it goes back to buddhism buddhist era you know buddhism and so on so and it continues so coming back to your question why hindu these battles were essentially between two sets of hindus because the problem originated in hinduism and that's also because of the suggestion from orthodox sections that caste is a religiously sanctioned institution and therefore could not be changed on the basis of these new fangled notions of liberty equality and fraternity and those are the kind of arguments that they were very unabashedly offering in those debates right so there was therefore a lot of that those battles were revolving around what it means what caste means in the hindu context and whatever problems that other communities showed as a result of this these debates were a natural outcome of the fact that they were living in this um, hindu ecosystem and uh, just because somebody or uh, because of uh, that oppression they were suffering converted to another religion they were not going to overnight uh, lose that stigma of untouchability so that bias was reflected in those communities too and uh, but that's something that was on the side th- th- on the sidelines the main battles were here uh, on the assumption that if you can resolve this those will also probably get resolved automatically now when the main battles itself themselves remain unresolved those uh, uh, prob- the other communities also continue to betray this uh, caste prejudice and pasmanda issue or uh, uh, untouchable christians all those are a real are a reality but as i said these historical historic battles in legislatures and uh, courts were essentially between hindus and that's not of my choosing i mean that's those are the battles that were fought and for a good reason that's why the focus is on them in terms of uh, i essentially the your argument is that the battle for political freedoms did not include battle for social freedoms Absolutely. in the in the previous century yeah. uh, but talking about these progressive ideas which lot of these uh, thinkers whether within the hindu society or the untouchable community depressed classes etc took up or even outside people people like dada boy in uh, the the parsi uh, parliamentarian yeah. uh, where did these ideas come from these progressive values were, were came because of the western education absolutely came because of colonial rule and what were the factors that brought these progressive ideas which could challenge the basic structure if i may use a legal term of the hindu religion you know this came about when uh, uh, you know somebody called uh, um uh, vital bhai patel who is the elder brother of uh, uh, sardar vallabhbhai patel uh, took up uh, the cause of intercaste marriage in 1918 you know very soon after uh, dada bhai broke uh, parliament silence on untouchability he took up this issue and he strategically um, highlights the fact that this problem affects not just lower caste uh, he cites examples from his region gujarat Uh, affecting um, upper caste people you know very uh, both the examples he cites were of women hindu uh, upper caste women brahmin women who were abandoned who could not be helped by the legal system because intercaste marriage was uh, considered illegal and the offspring of such marriage were illegitimate so when these issues were being raised the response uh, that again came about from the other side was this is all 
something that's forbidden by our custom, religion, and so on. And people like, um, uh, very amusingly, somebody like Jinnah pipes up and he says, look, uh, we are uh, all, uh, I mean, such ideas, the ones that uh, say somebody like uh, Vithalbhai Patel is reflecting, are all a result of Western education that we received. So an argument Jinnah raises in that context is you cannot now abandon somebody like Patel. You know, he is taking that position that he is because of, you know, the education and the values he imbibed and that's the direction to go. And you can't be now citing these, you know, the concerns of orthodox sections as a reason to not support somebody like uh, Patel. And this came about also because of that historic um, you know, rupture in 1857 when they sort of learned their lesson and uh, decided not to interfere with any of these customs, however oppressive they are, uh, if uh, they are camouflaged as uh, you know, religious uh, practices. So their attitude was, okay, if there is a consensus within your community for a certain reform or a change, then we will support. So they cho chose to remain uh, passive in this context of uh, reform, social reform and said, look, it's for you guys to sort out. So I don't know, it's a, a very roundabout uh, response I'm giving to the fact that there were such uh, you know, concerns being raised contemporaneously. Look, should we not be, I mean, this is such a logical outcome of um, the, you know, the Western education that we have imbibed. So you, it is making us challenge these old practices, these popular assumptions. So that's what uh, was uh, truly going on in our society. And uh, the other side also, it's not as if they were all uneducated people. They, had they too had education, but they uh, influenced as they were by their need to maintain uh, uh, old customs. They would come up with all sorts of uh, wily arguments for... Uh, you know, maintaining that, you know. So that that's the stuff of these debates that I captured in this book. And uh, as I said, they are uh, very uh, instructive in understanding what is going on even in today's India. And I, uh, and I think that's an important point to talk about because the central government today and the dominant party today draws on two different strains of Hindu reformism and thought. One is that represented by someone like Savarkar, who, even though he went negotiating with Sanathanists in the 30s and says, we won't interfere with issues of caste, we'll let you do what you want, is concerned with Hindu unity. And on the other hand, with people like Malavia or Malvia, who are concerned with the Hindu Mahasabha and preservation of existing customs, including rituals related to untouchability and caste distinction. Yeah. How is the government today balancing those different strands in its in its origins. And when it thinks about the past, you highlight, for example, the repeal of an 1850 law, I think, about uh, caste discrimination. How is it responding to the developments of yesteryear? Sure. Often one, um, uh, you know, one curious uh, phenomenon uh, that one sees today is, uh, you know, somebody like uh, Modi um, valorizes... Uh, Savarkar on the one side and at the same time he finds it uh, not contradictory at all that he also uh, pays lip sympathy to someone like uh, Gandhi or uh, Ambedkar. You know, he finds some way of uh, reducing each of them to one 
or to issues which uh, suit his politics like uh, somebody like uh, ambedkar comes in handy to say that uh, you know he was uh, very, i mean it's not necessarily expressly said by the by the rulers but uh, from that their ecosystem what comes about is don't forget ambedkar ultimately converted to uh, an, another indic religion uh the fact that he was all his life critiquing hinduism is something that they overlook and they are very happy to selectively uh, cite the criticism he makes of islam in uh, thoughts on pakistan and uh, the fact that bulk of his writings were uh, against uh, hindu practices and beliefs is glossed over right and when it comes to somebody like gandhi uh, he is somebody uh, very assiduously projected in the context of uh, swachh bharat you know he is reduced to somebody who had a fetish for cleanliness you know that he devoted his life to fighting untouchability and equally or probably more importantly uh, to bring about hindu muslim unity and he laid down his life for that cause is something that they overlook so when they talk about mahatma being still somebody who they value who they have high regard for these are aspects that are uh, neglected now when it comes to savarkar you know what we have to bear in mind i mean it's too obvious to be stated that they are from that stream but if they are able to sort of in today's context um somehow find a way of uh, putting all of these together conflating all of them without uh, um being too conscious of uh, the contradictions inherent contradictions among these different uh, streams of thought it's because Gandhi himself was quite a complex person when in, in his uh, had uh, handling of caste issue his he did not take uh, the rights based approach that uh, ambedkar had from the beginning say for instance in the context of uh, temple entry you know that was uh, a very sensitive issue for hindus you know even if they could bear the thought of uh, uh, you know Uh, untouchables having access to some of these public amenities being on the streets or getting access to education this was something that they found very hard to reconcile to this is something that they a lot of them felt that it was going to be polluting them polluting their place of worship polluting their shrine so it it was a very very hard battle to fight and what did gandhi do for a long time throughout 20s and uh, in the begin till the first few years of 1930s he was an unabashed votary of uh, of varna system uh, what it meant was the traditional the original fourfold uh, uh, you know division of hindu society so it meant that um, he also was unwilling to let untouchables although he was by then in 1920 he was instrumental in uh, the congress uh, party um passing a resolution more radical than the 1917 one on untouchability and then he took up this cause of uh, fighting against untouchability at the same time during that very period he did not find it contradictory that when it came to temples he was uh, not so forthcoming he was not saying okay let's have a rights based approach they are as i mean they are equal to our caste hindu so they should have equal access no strategically he felt the need to portray himself as a sanatani a term that has gained a great deal of salience in the recent past right he actually called himself a sanatani because he was fighting battles with people like uh, malviya and it was important for uh, him to show that he was no less a hindu than malviya and his, this was his strategy of 
gently nudging Hindu society towards reform. He felt that unlike Ambedkar, who was anyway a sectional leader, he could not afford to, as a mass leader representing the main Hindu mainstream, he had to carry everybody with him. So, rightly or wrongly, this was his strategy. Portray himself as a Sanatani himself and then gently, you know, push things towards the reforms that he had in mind. And this, the fact that he was doing it strategically is also evident from one interesting irony in his personal life, which is that in his personal life, in his ashrams, you know, there was no question of any uh, Varna practices. He would insist on everybody, including his wife, famously in that uh, Attenborough's movie, there was a clash with between him and his wife on his insistence on her not being exempted from the menial tasks of cleaning toilets and so on. He said, whoever lives in my ashram has to do that work. So he did not observe the traditional biases there at all. It's okay, this is a job that is worth uh, doing only by, that is meant only for lower caste to do. No, he was so such a believer of equality in personal space. He even adopts on a Dalit girl called Lakshmi, right? So in his personal life, he was like this. So it's a reverse of the the hypocrisy that others probably display that publicly you pretend to be uh, liberal but in your personal life you are very conservative, orthodox, uh, very fanatical in uh, adhering to old uh, retrograde, retrograde practices. But in Gandhi's case, if it was the other way around, he was being a, a consummate politician. This is how he read the situation. He felt that he needed to take these postures um, in the given context to carry people with him. So that is what in today's context is letting these people say, Gandhi also was a uh, Sanatani. So what is wrong in our being Sanatanis? But actually, if you look at the totality of it, Sanatani is a term that was used during that period to justify, perpetuate these retrograde uh, caste practices. And uh, uh, very often those who were pushing back called themselves Sanatanis and they would cite Sanatan Dharma as the reason for that. Right? So, but all these ironies are lost sight of. It's all a jumble because of these grey shades that come about. You know? But also, Manoj, your book very clearly shows a Gandhi's evolution over a period of time, even Absolutely. on temple entry, dealing with Hindi community, etc. Absolutely. He he. By the time Gandhi is murdered by Godse, yeah. uh, he is uh, there's a there's a whole trajectory. He's as with very race, editorials three days before he yeah, dies. As with race, as with caste, yes. Gandhi is far more progressive in the yeah. in the 1940s. As, and and with religion too. And with religion. You too. know, he, uh, there was prob there were prob probably problems with, uh, say, what he did in early 20s in the context of Khilafat and all that. But towards the end of his life, he was at his best. You know, he had no he had no hesitation to say that, uh, to pick up what uh, uh, Sushant just said, you know, on the question of intercaste marriage, he became such a radical towards the end of his life that he proclaimed that he would attend and bless only such marriages where it is uh, what is called... Um, you know, a very radical form of inter-caste inter marriage would be where an upper-caste uh, woman marries down. You know, she marries a lower-caste person, right? The fight continues to go on in India even today. Indian president, who's a tribal lady, 
there are clever ways in which temples do not allow entry into the main garbhagriha even True. today Absolutely. the president of india yeah. in some of the temples in delhi and in odisha is unable to enter the main sanctum sanctorum and they will find clever ways by saying this is an eight, this is a day which where we clean the temple this yeah. is a this is a time where it is not allowed so this is a battle which is an ongoing battle uh, in which in the last few years in the last decade or so there have been major losses that have been suffered by the progressive side uh, but it's a battle eventually as uh, martin luther king said you know history is always uh, on the side of justice always wins the arc of history <laughs> bends towards justice as long as all of us put our shoulders to it that's we really, we need to put our shoulders to it and i'm sure the battle will at some point in 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 future will be won by the progressive side and this uh, this oppressive practice uh, would be eliminated very well said and that's a very optimistic note to end on there's a lot more we could talk about but i think we're running out of time so thank you both for being here thank you and me. really recommend the book to anybody